Welcome to the next episode of our podcast on negotiation. And uh, today we have a very special guest, a negotiation professor, a uh, world famous negotiation consultant, as, and it doesn't come from me, it comes from Forbes. Uh, and also, and also um, a very famous uh, best selling author, uh, of, uh, multiple best selling author, Jack Nasher. Jack, great to, be, great to have you with us. Hi, Remy. Thanks for the invitation. Please to talk to you, uh, Jack. Jack, uh, let us. Uh, is there anything? Uh, is there anything I forgot? I, I also. Uh, I also. I also read that Süddeutsche uh, Zeitung, which is a major major newspaper here in Germany, called you uh, an expert, a pope of lie detection. And I have here <laughs> yeah. in the back. Mm-hmm. In the back, I have uh, the, the Pinocchios uh, uh, directly from Florence. Uh, how did your adventure with negotiation and light detection start? Well, it started basically. Well, my my first uh, non-academic, like best-selling book was about lie detection, and the reason was that I was a horrible lie detector myself. So uh, you know, also at at school, people would tell me stories, and I would believe everything. I was very gullible. Um, so this kind of naivete. Um, yeah, made me upset because I really wanted to see the truth, obviously. You know, then I studied law. I was in court and I did my legal training uh, at a criminal court. And I just uh, wondered that, you know, there must be a way to see if somebody is lying or not. And um, then I looked into the literature, the psychological literature. And to my surprise, there was a lot of research conducted on the topic for the last 50, 60 years. But I I'd never heard of it. And most people... I'd never heard of it. Well, now Paul Ekman, microexpressions are you know quite well known, but at the time, about 10 years ago, 15, 10, 15 years ago, I had never heard of that. And uh, then I looked into it and I basically wrote a booklet for myself because I just wanted to be able. And I, you know, I thought that there must be a way to see the truth. And yeah, you know, I was reading a couple of books on the topic, and every time I was in hospital at the time, I had a pneumonia quite severe. I was in hospital for over a month. And I, you know, I read a couple of books and everybody who came to visit me said, wow, lie detection, amazing. I want to know that. And then I kind of uh, thought about it. I thought, okay, these academic books and I read some articles, why don't I just, you know, publish the book? Everyone is interested in it. And it just came to me like that. And I thought that it's going to be a bestseller for 100%. I only approached two publishers on uh, via Xing at the time. I just wrote them on Xing. And um, I got immediate replies. Um, it was published by Random House, uh, Heine Verlag, 2010, and it became a bestseller. So I was on TV a lot because, you know, it was an interesting topic. And it was, it was funny because I myself, I, and, you know, they called me the Lügenpapst. Um, and, um, you know, like, like I never failed to, 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 to see if somebody's lying or not. And it was actually the opposite. I was horrible at it. And the only reason I read the book, uh, I wrote the book, was to learn it myself. And then I did. Uh, I learned it, and I really I had to stick to the techniques. And I and I gave trainings on the matter. And in the trainings, I met people who are much better than me. After five hours of training, which pissed me off tremendously and still does, because they were actually talented. But one thing I found is that I got much much better. I'm very good now. Of course, I'm not infallible. Nobody is um, at detecting lies. But these techniques, and you know, I was really surprised that they worked so well. And uh, yeah, so that was my first best-selling book, which unfortunately, you know, moved me in the wrong direction because now I was training police, I was training border control, I was uh, talking, to, you know, to judges. They invited me to courts, 
And that really wasn't what I was interested in doing. I, I was interested in negotiations. But I thought there are so many books written on negotiation. You know, it's not really necessary at the time, I, I thought. So So then I was this lie detection expert, which kind of made me feel uncomfortable because, first of all, I wasn't actually good at it myself. I wasn't very comfortable. You know, there, there wasn't my, my talent, I would say. It was only a toolbox I wrote for myself. And um, yeah, and and then I kind of I stopped uh, working for for police. Um, and I, now I still do it sometimes. I've just uh, wrote uh, an article for the Deutsche Polizeiblatt, which will um, which will be published this year. And you know, I, I still do that with law enforcement here and there, um, and also with and, and that I liked, uh, of course, uh, with um, uh, some government agencies. Um, that you know, of course, it, it's just interesting. But no, I'm a negotiation advisor, and so this helps a lot in negotiations because people are lying all the time in negotiations. They, you know, we just call it bluffing, but basically it's a lie. Everything that that's not truthful is a lie. I'm, I'm not, you know, here to uh, talk about morality or whatever, but you know, it's a lie. So I think it's very helpful to know if somebody's telling you the truth because usually people lie when they talk about their alternatives, right? And that when they talk about the last price they're willing to pay or accept, right? And here, of course, these techniques help tremendously. And um, and I teach that uh, how to find out what the real, the, the actual last price is, what the real alternative is. So I think it's you know it's a very good good point uh, when when it comes to negotiation, certainly. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there are a lot of connections um, uh, and the ability to, to judge the extent to which information that we are acquiring is truthful or not uh, defines the quality of our quality as negotiators indeed. So, so yes, I read the book. I have somewhere somewhere in the, in the, uh, behind me. Uh, uh, congratulations. Uh, great book. Uh, enjoyed it. Enjoyed it a lot. But let's talk. Uh, recently you published or regularly published in Forbes on uh, the most important negotiations uh, for a particular year. And yeah. I would like to tackle uh, tackle that uh, aspect in our chat um, by um, asking you about what is new, which negotiation, in your opinion, it will be the most important, most decisive uh, world-changing negotiation in 2020. Well, first of all, let me give you some advice. Uh, never, never write a Forbes list because you're going to piss off people. And people will say, well, why is this not on the list? Why did you put this on the list? Why is this number seven and not number four? And uh, so it's like the worst thing you can, it was the dumbest idea I ever had to, to write this Forbes list. And plus it's a pain in the ass because you, I really have to do a lot of reading um, in order to you know, come up really with something that I think is, is uh, worthwhile. And... Um, Okay, so it's out there, and I think that's the fifth or sixth uh, Forbes list I, I have published. And um, certainly the most important negotiation this year um, will be the Ukraine-Russia negotiations. Um, certainly this one or the Taiwan-China negotiations, which hopefully, you know, will, uh, will take place. Uh, hopefully there will be negotiations, and the same with Russia and Ukraine. I think nothing is more important than that. Um, I'm I'm very scared um, of of you know what is happening here. I'm basically sitting on packed uh, bags. Um, I have to uh, yeah file for probably Afghan citizenship to uh, get out of here uh, at <laughs> one point or the other. Who would have thought that an Afghan uh, passport will you know could could, could save lives? 
but uh, yeah, I'm I'm really scared of this, and and you know we, we're gonna talk about this later. I think it's it's one uh, we should conclude with that and why and and what what should be done. But certainly, I think this is the most important negotiation of the year. Indeed, indeed. Uh, uh, a few months ago, I had uh, Mikhail uh, Mikhail Trotsky, who uh, with whom uh, we spoke about, um, was a, a conflict analyst. Uh, uh, originally, originally uh, um, based uh, based in uh, based in, uh, in Moscow, um, and we talked about how a potential deal between between Russia and Ukraine could look like. Yes, uh, what is your take on it, Jack? What do you think uh, needs to happen for the parties to start negotiating? And that's number, question number one. And then. Um, is there any possibility? Do you see? Can you envision a potential uh, sketch of, a, of an, how an agreement between Russia and Ukraine could look like? You know, that's funny because I, I just talked to uh, Bob Nukin uh, at Harvard on on this topic, and we, we you know, we where there's some things we disagree on, but what we both agreed on is that the deal is very clear. Everybody knows what the deal is going to look like, um, more or less, more or less, uh, right? So. Uh, Russia will leave Ukraine. Russia will keep uh, Crimea. That is lost. Uh, the, um, uh, the Ukraine won't join NATO, but they will need some assurance, right? Which actually NATO is, but there will probably be a guarantee by the United States or something like that. And the only problem is the four regions that Russia annexed, right? Uh, in Eastern Ukraine. That is the biggest problem. And I think that was the tipping point uh, why the negotiations are so, so hard now, because it's very, it's going to be very tough for Russia to give up these four regions. They're not going to do it because they're part of Russia now. And that was, I think, the most important, the decisive point that should have never happened. I think negotiations before that point would have been much, much easier. Um, now it's very difficult because Ukraine can't accept that. Russia can't accept giving them back. So what's going to happen here? But I think we have an answer to that. And the answer is a referendum. But of course, a referendum is difficult. Will it be all four territories? Will it be one by one? Uh, is it going to be observed by, uh, you know, by who? By Is, is NATO or the UN? Who's, who's going to check? So these are the details. But we know pretty, you know, we, we know pretty much how the deal is going to look like. And, uh, you know, and people agree on that. That's what's going to happen. Crimea is lost. Uh, Ru Russia will leave. NATO, uh, uh, the, the Ukraine will need some form of uh, security uh, guarantee. Uh, and that's it. And that, that's the, the ironic thing that, and it's very rare in a negotiation, that you already know what the deal will look like. And the only reason it's not implemented is because people say, well, it's not ripe yet. We have to wait. And, you know, I... I think that's a very dangerous, and I, you know, I think we're almost too late now. And and that's um, also I talked to um, John Mearsheimer of the University of Chicago about this uh, in Oxford uh, a couple of months ago, and he said really the decisive point was the four regions. When they annexed them, negotiations became almost impossible. So he has a very dim view, and so do I. But you know, we have a dilemma here because what's going to happen? Let's say Russia loses. Okay, they get they get the German tanks now. The Ukrainians. Russia loses. What's going to happen? Well, you know, Russia is not uh, is not Germany in World War II. They have the uh, nuclear. They have nuclear bombs more than any other country in the world. Are they going to use them? Well, probably they are. If they lose to save face to you know ruin the whole world, probably they're going to do it. It's very very risky. It's very risky. So one way or the other, I think we're in deep shit. And uh, my view is that. You know, is it too early to negotiate? I think it's almost too late to negotiate. 
So how can we bring um, uh, Putin and Zelensky uh, to the negotiating table? It seems that they hate each other. It seems that they have, uh, um, uh, they have their um, egos, right? Uh, how, can, uh, how, can, how can they um, you know, uh, put them away uh, to the benefits of their countries? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's always uh, like that, right? When, when, when you have, I mean, I, I see it in my everyday negotiations, trade unions, managers, they hate each other too. They hate their guts, but, you know, uh, professionals don't really care that much about this. And we can have top level negotiations without the actual uh, presidents uh, even uh, participating or, you know, coming in later. So I, I, don't, I don't see that as a problem. But the, the thing is, and, you know, also, of course, there are talks going on right now. Of course, uh, we don't know about these talks, but they're not top level. And that is the, the big difference. They're not top level. And um, and I think that the problem is there is too much pressure in, in other countries of extending the war for different reasons, uh, right? Um, the United States has a very different interest in the topic than we are. We're much closer to it, right? So I think it's a very, um, you know, obviously what what, you know, it's Ukraine is a sovereign country. We can't force them to negotiate, obviously. We can't bring them, force them to go to the table. But on the other hand, though, this is a war that, you know, can spin out of control, that can lead to World War III. So Ukraine has not only the responsibility to, uh, you know, to fight uh, its own borders, but also, you know, they're, they're well, they have par- they're asking for partnerships, but they have to act like a partner as well. So they have to be aware of the responsibility they have, right? So it's not only about Ukraine anymore, and um, so I, so I think it's it's very very difficult uh, because, uh, but 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 I, I don't see the problem is that people hating each other. That happens all the time. We have deals with people who hate each other. I I, th- I think I would say 40 percent of the deals we advise people hate each other. So usually you know it's companies dissolving. They, you know, partners uh, selling their equity, they hate their guts, right? So much has happened. So uh, I, I don't think that's that's the actual problem. The problem is uh, the pressures from different sides. But um, but I think it's we should negotiate as, as soon as possible. And, you know, by the way, in my, also on my Forbes list, I, I talk about Roger Fisher, the, um, the founder of, of the Harvard Project of Negotiation, uh, the predecessor of, of Bob Nukin, um, who said you should always negotiate categorically. Always negotiate because negotiation or negotiating doesn't mean you have to give up what you believe in. It doesn't mean you have to, uh, you know, forget your principles. No, no. It, it just means sitting down, exploring options. And I'm sure this is done on, on not a top level, but uh, I think this this should be done on a top level. And also, um, and this is, and, and I'm surprised, especially here in Germany, that you know people um, really ask for war they say no 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 don't negotiate don't negotiate i think that's very dangerous that's very dangerous because i i think you should always negotiate you should always sit down explore options yes uh, like helmut schmidt said the, the former german chancellor it's better to what do you say like what 1000 uh, negotiations are better than one day of war right yes that's it's absolutely very easy for us to say well let them fight you let them fight no no they should you know let them fight well we sit here and tell them to you know let them fight and it, but it, what's interesting is that when you say negotiate you get attacked people say you're crazy you let, let them fight very strange very very strange things happening so. that's uh, i i couldn't agree more i think uh, negotiation is uh, is exactly the way to uh, to end conflict and uh, uh, i do hope that the parties uh, will recognize it uh, sooner than later 
another another uh, conflict that uh, potential conflict yes i guess we can already um, we can already include it in the list of real uh, conflict as you mentioned in, in your list is taiwan and mm -hmm. um, do you believe negotiation is necessary is it going to take place in 2023 between uh, Taiwan, Xi Jinping's government, Chinese government, and uh, whoever is backing Taiwan, uh, the U.S. probably being leading the coalition. How do you think, what is your take uh, there? Will there be a negotiation or will there, there be a coercive conflict? There? Well, um, basically, you know, the, the chances of uh, something happening um, are always higher when there's upheaval in the country. And, you know, in, the, in China, we, we do have economic difficulties. They're not as bad as, um, as people suggest in the West, um, because, you know, I know some people in China, they say, well, you know, there were probably some protests, but they, they never actually saw them. So it, it wasn't like, you know, people are going crazy, uh, like, like, uh, like, like we saw here in the news. Um, so, but, but, but still, I mean, it's always a boost of nationalism uh, and it's a good distraction to start a war. And I think it's going to happen. I think Taiwan will fall. I think it will be part of China. Because the only problem with this is the only one who would do anyone or the only nation that would do anything about it is, of course, the United States. And the United States, you know, there's the Taiwan uh, Relations Act from 1979, which is quite vague. Um, but it just says it's a f an area of, of, of concern or grave concern uh, to the United States. And what they, they would provide Taiwan with arms of defensive character. That's it. And, you know, when U.S. presidents were asked, would, would you interfere? Clinton said, well, you know, it depends. Trump had a great answer because he sounded very clear, but was very vague at the same time. He said, well, um, if they would attack, China would know exactly what his reaction would be. That was that. So nobody knows what the hell his reaction is, except for China, perhaps. And um, Biden was the only one who made it very clear. He said, yes. We would help. We would send weapons. But, you know, again, that is quite vague. Wait, it could just be very defensive. could just be some, some pr pr helmets, basically, right? Um, and I don't think the United States would risk because, you know, it's a multipolar world. It's not just the United States anymore. China is very strong. So is Russia. Um, but China, of course, much more. So I think and I hope that... You know, and again, this is going to cause a shitstorm, but it's my, my opinion that nothing should happen because, you know, China, Taiwan is, is like China, Hong Kong. They're going to take over and they're going to make it quicker than we like it. But I mean, just look at the map, right? Look at the map. What's going to happen? Are we going to start a world war because we don't want Taiwan to join China? No, we're not going to do that, right? So my very personal opinion is nothing should happen. My personal opinion is also that, of course, it would be great if there were negotiations going on, but, uh, you know, we have to keep our interests in mind, right? We have to keep our interests in mind, European interests, um, security concerns for the whole world. And yes, negotiations would be nice, but I think the, the imbalance is so clear and China is so strong and the U.S. is so, the Taiwan Relations Act is, is so weak. I mean, look, they kicked Taiwan out of the uh, U.N., right, to make place for, for China. You know, to me, that says it all. When, uh, you know, when, when things get serious, they're not going to do anything. And I think that's, I don't know, it's very cynical, but I think that's actually good for us.
Yes. yes, Taiwan is also the world's largest manufacturer of, um, of, uh, of computer chips, right? Uh, and um, uh, there is also an economic dimension um, dimension of this uh, to this conflict, and that is, uh, you know, uh, if uh, if Taiwan falls, uh, then China is going to control uh, is going to control the production of very key assets uh, for digital economy, yes? uh, which means uh, the microchips, uh, uh, more sophisticated and less sophisticated. Basically, most of the objects uh, uh, that were um, uh, of our everyday use already already includes them, right? So, uh, does it mean that um, you know? Is that would be, would the conclusion be? Uh, that if Taiwan falls, China becomes the dominant uh, power when it comes to digital economy in the world. I mean, uh, could be China will do everything to to get stronger and stronger, and they do they do it through deals, and they actually rarely do it through force. Uh, I mean, if you look at the world map, they they didn't do much uh, so far. They are they are not you know they they don't really care about other countries uh, other than you know economic deals, taking over ports in in uh, Greece, but you know by paying or. Uh, investing in um, in Africa, or actually investing in Afghanistan, uh, with in Hamburg, with, uh, as well. uh, in Hamburg uh, as well, yeah, or with uh, you know lithium uh, in Afghanistan. I think, by the way, that's going to be very very important uh, in the future, as as soon as Afghanistan is really uh, more stable. Actually, it is quite stable now with the Taliban because the terrorists are running the country. Basically, the, the former guerrilla fighters are, which is kind of ironic. I talk to people in Kabul and they say, "Well, it's more quiet than ever. Nothing happens because you know the Taliban, don't, they, they they don't uh, blow up cars anymore. Now ISIS does it. You know, Daesh uh, ISIS, uh, which is also kind of ironic, right? Uh, they see the Taliban as Western puppets, uh, much too soft and un-Islamic. And, and they start uh, blowing up cars now, so but but to much smaller extent than the Taliban did before. So I think that's going to be uh, also, you know, for for future uh, deals, extremely important because Afghanistan has the largest uh, uh, the, the largest lithium uh, re resources, the largest the mountains filled with lithium, and and I think that is going to be very 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 important in, in the future. So yeah, every I mean every country will try to do anything they can to become more powerful. That's you know that's just real politics. That's what's that's what's happening. And uh, one thing we know for sure is that uh, you know American dominance is over because China is just very strong, and so is Russia. So to John Mearsheimer of Ch uh, University of Chicago, he says that actually it's the three polar world, and he sees Russia even though it's economically much weaker. Militarily, I mean, it has the, the most nukes uh, out of yeah. all countries in the world, so that 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 does have an effect. No? Yes, yes. Jack, what is your take on uh, on human rights? Yeah, because uh, on your list, on your Forbes list, you have uh, you've included also Indonesia, you've included also Iran. Uh, um, how do we how do you envision uh, negotiations of human rights with uh, with religious regimes? Well. Um, the, the first question here is, who should negotiate with who? And the answer is, the West can't uh, go to Iran and say, well, this is what you should do. Uh, because it's a sovereign state. Uh, like it or not, it's not the government we chose for the country, but it's their country. And the last time the West uh, interfered with, uh, you know, when they when they removed Mossadegh, who was a demo, uh, elected leader of Iran in the 1950s, the West removed him, which was, I think, horrible uh, and, and really, really dumb. But, you know, it's post-colonialism to expect other countries to adhere to our standards. We can't do that. 
And of course, uh, you know, I like an open society. I like uh, LGBT rights myself. Uh, I like, you know, all the liberties uh, we have, but we can't, you know, enforce them. It, it doesn't work like that. We have to help negotiations taking place inside the countries. Um, and that is what we have to do. So change must come you know, from, from inside the country. We, we can't tell them what to do. And that, I think, is, is a big misunderstanding. People are upset that we don't do anything about Iran. Well, what should we do? Should we send tanks and, and uh, you know, have the, 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 the Shah's uh, grandson uh, come to power again? doesn't work like that. And, you know, I think right now, also Qatar, the football uh, cup, you know, it's, it's the World Cup. It's not the Western Cup. You can't, uh, you know, teach other countries how to be. Imagine Saudi Arabia would say, would they start wearing wristbands saying that uh, in the West, you know, they separate church and uh, government. We don't, that's very, very bad. We're not here to school each other, right? We have to, we have to stay a little bit humble um, here, even though we believe in, you know, what we believe in. And but I think this change must come within, and we have to support it inside the countries, and and you know, and of course, help anyone who comes to our door uh, suffering and being in need. But I don't like the you know interfering. So negotiate. Sometimes the best way to help negotiate is just to facilitate them uh, to to negotiate. Like in you know Armenia, Azerbaijan, the conflict. I think the best thing we can do is to facilitate negotiations. And I think what the EU did was was quite good here because even though it was clear that Azerbaijan was the aggressor here because they, they just attacked Armenia and took advantage of the fact that Russia is weak at the moment. Uh, they were you know the ones who guaranteed peace. And what the EU did was not saying that, oh, Azerbaijan, you attacked them. They said, no, no, you should both stop with your aggressions, which outraged many Armenians. Uh, you know, I'm part Armenian myself, and many were outraged. How can they say that? Are you crazy? But it wasn't it wasn't a stupid move because, you know, that way you can act as a mediator. That way you can bring both parties to the table, and that's exactly what they're trying to do, uh, what they have done, um, and, you know, causing a ceasefire, um, which is very good. So sometimes the best thing you can do is just getting both parties to negotiate with each other. Right. right? Jack, how do you, um, how do you, how, what would you hear at your advice, how to facilitate um, um, uh, such negotiations in Iran and, and Indonesia, right? So where uh, women rights are at stake, where, um, uh, where LGBT uh, plus rights are at stake. And one of the parties completely ignores, or uh, let's say, uh, considers these negotiations as completely illegitimate, illegitimate because it's against uh, against let's say the set of the norms that the, that the, that they um, uh, that they that they pursue or want to enforce on the rest of the country. So, how to facilitate uh, a negotiation process uh, of human rights in those countries? Well, again, I think uh, the, the the thing is Indonesia. We don't have a place at the table. This is the law within Indonesia, the lawmakers in Indonesia. We can't join them at the table. We're not invited. It would be ridiculous, even though we, if we don't like it, it's just not our place to negotiate. Sometimes you don't negotiate because you're just not invited. And it's, it's, it's none of your business. And, you know, as sad as this is for us and, and quite unacceptable, that's just the way it is. 
Okay. Yes. Uh, so <clears throat> uh, that means uh, we somehow need to inspire the, the the parties, the involved parties, to somehow start talking uh, with each other. I guess that's uh, that's the best we can do, and it comes exactly. to uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, different differences based on uh, perception of of human rights. Yes. That. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how about climate negotiations? It seems that uh, the governments across the world have uh, are having now or prioritizing other issues higher, such as you know I don't know conflict in the Ukraine uh, uh, or war between Russia and Ukraine, um, inflation, uh, economic slowdown, possibility of recession, and so on. Right, so nobody is uh, really treating. Uh, treating scientists and scientific uh, scientific warnings about irreversibility uh, really seriously. Mm. So what needs to be done to commence the negotiation process on something which is almost just as critical as coercive conflicts that are going on uh, around us? What do you think, Jack? Well, I think the negotiations, the climate negotiations, uh, even though they've been taking place for decades now, very, very little has happened. Why? Because it's so complex and it's so costly for each country who has to actually do that, right? It's so expensive, and um, I, I like the approach of the Copenhagen consensus. Um, you know, you've, I'm sure you've heard of them, where experts, including two Nobel laureates, um, review research and identify the most effective things we can do to make the world a better place. And um, climate change is part of that. Um, and there are many other things that are more important, quite frankly, um, to to get more value for your, you know, value for money in development. And they have uh, 19 targets. And one of them is uh, child mortality, malaria, uh, things like that, where you have much more bang for your bucks. Because we have to ask ourselves um, when we negotiate that, is it worth it or not? Is like 0.1 degree, is that worth 300 billion? dollars in wealth? Probably not. Probably not. So, you know, first of all, we have to look at that with a very fresh perspective. And, um, you know, and I think this has turned into an almost religious war. Um, and, and, you know, I'm always, you know, I'm, I'm quite uh, a friend of a utopia where, you know, where it's very rational, where we just look at things unbiased. And I think the most important negotiation in terms of climate is we have to negotiate with activists because I see a real danger of them turning into terrorists um, because, you know, now they're still being nice. You know, they throw tomato soup on, on a painting. Okay. Well, you know, not very good, but still it's, it's not that bad, but I think once, you know, people drive over them, they glue, they, they glue themselves on, on, the, on the street and people drive over them or people get more and more violent. You see these images of truckers pulling them away, beating them up. This will turn violent. This will cause, uh, I, I think this will you know, lead to terrorism, the real proper terrorism. So I think it's, we, we can't lose touch with activists. Even if you're the most conservative uh, person in the world, you have, the, one of the arts of negotiation is to keep the conversation alive, even if you think people are crazy. And, you know, as a negotiation advisor, this is my most important task. It's easy for me to negotiate with the other party because you hate them. So it's so often when we come to the table in negotiation, everything turned bitter. They hate each other. Like, like you said before with Putin, Zelensky. Yeah. When you're too involved, let someone else do it. 
but you have to keep the conversation alive because I think this is a very like real danger that you know we could have a terrorism problem in the Western world in the next couple of years if if we don't keep the conversation alive with them and negotiate with them. So this I think is the most important uh, thing we have to negotiate right now. That's a very powerful message, Jack. Thank you so much for this. Uh, we need to keep the conversation going. We need to talk to each other to prevent uh, escalation. Yes, uh, that's, uh, that's a great message. My last question uh, is always um, about great negotiators, uh, Jack. So if you look at, uh, at, um, at present uh, uh, contemporary or historical figures uh, that have inspired you uh, the most as a negotiation professor, as a negotiation consultant, uh, an author. Um, who would you who would you mention? Who comes to your mind first as the yeah, great negotiator I, or the great negotiators? I I hate to say. By the way, I see myself. I have a very big cheek because I have a toothache. Yeah, I was I was at a dentist yesterday, and I kind of tried to get a nice angle on me, but just to tell you, I don't look like a raccoon. And it's because of my tooth. I actually went to the emergency for the first time in my life. I went to dental emergency at night because I was in so, you know, such pain. It's my wisdom teeth. I have to get it removed. But, you know, just just notice it's getting it bigger. It doesn't show, Jack. It's getting bigger and bigger during during our talk. So it's kind of Had fun. you not mentioned it, we would not have noticed. <laughs> yeah, no, usually I, I look much better. That, that's my point here. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, so about, you know, I don't like to answer the question because my answer is so boring um, and I'm going to give you Nelson Mandela, like so many others, um, uh, you know, a man who has had lost the, the best years of his life and still negotiate. And when he was in prison, he studied um, the Afrikaans language, the Afrikaans history. And other people would say, are you crazy? What, what, you know, why do you care about the enemy? And he said, well, we have to understand, we have to understand them in order to talk to them. And he could have started a slaughtering. He could have become the king of uh, South Africa when he was released, and he didn't. No, he sat down with the clerk, took his hand and said, you know, nobody, we, we have to negotiate, we have to talk. So this is, is my hero. And I know it's boring, but, you know, usually my heroes are uh, in when I sit in negotiations and, you know, sometimes we sit usually when we advise and negotiate where well, we train companies or we advise them. We're in the background, but sometimes I'm there and I'm surprised by people at the table who are faced with a great argument by the other side and they just start and reverse it and totally reframe the argument. And this, to me, is always, I wouldn't say so much I'm impressed by great negotiators, but it's these moments. Sometimes, you know, you have great moments of a negotiation. And, uh, and, and that inspires me every day. And, and I, you know, and, and especially in business, uh, people who, who start companies, once they're successful, it seems so obvious. Yeah, of course, you know, that was needed at the time. But when you're there, when they start the business, they have to negotiate with banks. They have to negotiate with, with investors. They have to negotiate with uh, procurement every, with everyone. And it seems so improbable. And yet they never stop. They never stop. They just go. And that really, you know, people who create something out of nothing against all odds, these are the people who I really respect and see as great negotiators. Because in government, po politicians, you know, there are so many factors. Sometimes I don't know. Was Merkel a good negotiator? I don't really know because there were so many other factors that contributed to the results, right? It's, it's hard to pinpoint 
her achievement? Uh, what exactly was it that she did in the negotiation? So that to me, um, you know, uh, everyday negotiations, particularly in business and particularly from entrepreneurs, are the ones that really amaze me, flabbergast me, uh, leave me with uh, in awe when I see them. Jack, thank you so much for sharing your experience and wisdom uh, um, uh, uh, and uh, your picks and explaining your picks on the world-changing negotiations for 2023. It was great having you with us, Jack. Uh, thank you so much. All the best. Well, thank you, Remy. Thank you for this interesting conversation.